He said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will any, anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all, all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will go, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am <laughs> pleased with you, and I know you by name. This is God's word. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Romero. Good morning, everybody. Disconnect a little bit from uh, from the day to day rigor of life and reconnect with God. You know, part of sabbatical is 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 getting disconnected from all the areas you're pouring out, so that you can uh, get connected with God and get poured back into and get refilled. So we're going to be doing that. And my first ever sabbatical in ministry. I did all these years of ministry. First one I did was uh, a couple years ago, and my wife and I had our 15th anniversary, and uh, we went to Hawaii. Yeah. <coughs> yes. Yes, my ties, and uh, that is where I developed the love for for all things tiki, um, yes. including my ties. So yeah, I remember uh, Dave and Shannon actually told us because we were like, ah, Hawaii. I'm not sure. They're like, it's gonna be awesome. Get a jeep and just drive around Hawaii. The moment you get there, the stress is gonna melt off your shoulders. I remember that conversation. And guess what? We landed, and it was like you smelled the volcanic air. <sighs> And all, and all the crazy colorful chickens running around. And we did all of the stress melted off our shoulders. It was so amazing. We climbed volcanoes and we hiked into secret waterfalls and we kayaked all around. It was, it was amazing. It was beautiful. And um, I remember Nancy and I, we had this moment where um, we were sitting. It's, it's like one of those things on your desktop, you know, on your wallpaper, <coughs> on your computer, sitting in this paradise and the ocean's rolling in, the white sandy beach, and there's nobody on the beach except us. And there's actually this like lava pool, uh, lava rock formation, and we're sitting in a pool and the water's just kind of going in and out, and it's warm and it's just paradise. And we just paused and we started talking about life. And we started talking about where we've come from and where we're going. 15 years in, what's next? Um, and I remember us like, in that moment, just like really connecting face to face, really like having an understanding of one another. Because you can, how many know you can get so busy in life that you kind of go shoulder to shoulder and you just go? Yeah. So it was yeah. one of those moments where it was like a mountaintop moment in our life where we look backward, where we've come from, we look forward, where we felt like God was going to lead us, prayed on the beach. Like you can't get more Christian than that. <laughs> And it was, it was amazing, man. It was just, and so, I'm, and the reason I'm saying that, I'm excited because uh, in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to take my parents and our kids, and we're going to go back there. And uh, we've been saving and scrounging and, and selling ties to try to make it back to uh, Hawaii and um, have another, hopefully, mountaintop moment. Um, but today, I, I want us to experience a type of mountaintop moment uh, similar to that. I want us to, to pause and climb up a mountain, so to speak, and look backward at the journey we've been on in the Exodus and where we've come from 
and, and where we're going and where God is leading us. Because we've been journeying with Israel from Egypt to the promised land. And um, we've been discussing what it means to be freed by Jesus from the idols we worship and the wounds that we carry. And today what I want us to do is just pause at the end of this series and, and survey the land from, from a mountaintop moment, if you will. Okay? And I, I, I'm hoping that you and I can all open our eyes and open our heart to experience God's presence right here and right now. I'm hoping that as we do, we'll find the freedom from the things that tend to bind us up. Like uh, maybe we'll find a view to the promised land that we're longing for. Because we'll realize that God is actually at work in the valleys and in the mountaintop experiences and in the promised lands of our life. He's at work preparing us to be people who can actually even take the promised land. He's at work in our hearts to draw us to himself and show us a, a really profound truth. And that is that, that he actually is the promised land that we've been seeking all along. So I want to start off with a question that I'll return to a few times. Is God your promised land? We're going to explore that question through this sermon. Three different locations, the valleys, the mountains, and the promised lands. You guys ready? Point number one, the valleys. Verse three, Ramiro just read it. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. What we find here is startling reality. Think about that. Like God is done with Israel. And the best analogy I could come up with, and you guys got to forgive me because it's weak and it was three in the morning when I was writing this part, but in this, God reminds me kind of of a generous prom date, um, whose, whose date kind of ignored him all night and danced with everyone but him, then got belligerent for no reason and threw up all over his tux, right? But afterward, he still gave her a ride home and he walked her up to the door, uh, she stumbled up. I, I mean, he may not be planning on taking her out on date number two, but he was still a gentleman. <laughs> that's, that's the vision I get when I read this passage. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> How did they get here? How did they get into this moment where God says, I'm done? Israel had been in slavery so long they forgot how to live the straight life. So after God had delivered them with a mighty hand and plagued the world power of that day until they finally released them from slavery. And they sent them out wearing all of the wealth of Egypt on their blinging bodies. Right? He led them through the mighty sea on dry ground, crushed their enemies behind them. What did they do immediately? Grumbled and complained. Did you lead us out here to die? Well, I don't know where that accent's coming from. Did you lead us out here to die? Where's the food? Where's the water? We had it better back in Egypt. They had everything they needed. God, think about how God responds to that moment of complaining. And we talked about this, but we're looking backward for a moment. In the moment of their complaining, God rained down food from heaven. Magic clouds that bake bread. Right? 
And God fed them water from a rock. They had everything they need. And then what did they do? They took all of God's blessings, like the wealth of Egypt, the gold he gifted them. They melted it down into the shape of a calf. And they bowed down saying, this is the God who saved us from Egypt. What the heck, Israel? What are you doing? You see what this is saying? This is pointing to a truth here. They complain when they don't feel like God's given them enough. And then they worship the gifts instead of him when he gives them what they want. In other words, it's revealing a truth about all of us that only the valleys of life can reveal. That in the valley where we face trials and temptation, it's easy to get blinded by what's all around us. And to forget where you're going and why you're going there and who you are and just completely lose perspective. In the trials, we grumble and we complain because we're not getting what we want. And in the temptations, we set up golden calves and we worship God's gifts instead of him. And how has God responded to them so far? He's still there. Still with them. In fact, this entire journey can be understood in terms of God's presence. Think about it. God seems kind of absent at the beginning of the book, it's just Pharaoh. He's um, just being a, being a, I don't know, a slave driver, literally, right? And um, God comes down to deliver them in Exodus chapter 3. And when he makes his presence known, that's when they get saved. In other words, he saved them by being present. And then when God's people left Egypt, God's presence stayed with them through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. That led them through the wilderness and then led them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, when they got the covenant, God's presence came down and there was thunder and smoke and lightning. And God spoke to them. And listen to what God says is the point of their redemption. Exodus 29. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Both the means and the ends of Israel's redemption, everything about their purpose, their identity, their future, their freedom could be understood in terms of God's presence. The point of redemption is his presence. In fact, he did something he'd never done before. Like Because in the beginning of the story, we see how Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden because they couldn't remain in God's presence in their sin. But now God comes down in the middle of the camp and he sets up camp in the middle of their camp in a tabernacle. And he says, I want to be right in the middle. It's like a, one commentator said that the, the tabernacle was like a portable Sinai where God's presence would come down and meet with his people. And it occupied the center of the camp, the center of their lives. It was like God was constantly reminding them, I'm with you, I'm for you. One commentator I read said this, In a sense, the tabernacle was as much the Israelites' destination as the promised land. And then we just read this passage, verse 7. Now Moses used the tent, uh, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Now, pause there. Why did that happen? Because Israel just kept sinning, and and they were that belligerent prom day. And God finally said, you know what? I'm not going to dwell right in the middle. Anyone inquiring the Lord would go to the tent outside, uh, meeting outside the camp. And wherever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses as he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down. 
and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped. Each at the entrance of their tent. Can you imagine that? It sounds like a fairy tale. This happened. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. On the mountain, most of the words that God spoke to Moses were instructions for building this tabernacle. But right in the middle, you know what happened? Right in the middle of chapter 13, God's in the middle of explaining how to build the tabernacle. And all of a sudden, there's a great noise in the camp. And Moses goes running down. And what's he see? He sees what we talked about last week. Chaos going on in the camp because everybody's worshiping a golden calf. Literally, it's Israelites saying we prefer a golden calf to the tabernacle. We prefer this idol to God's real presence living in our midst. And Kenny covered that last week. I don't want to go too deep into it. But in the wilderness, when your vision gets obscured, when you sense God's absence more than you sense his presence, even though he's there, you kind of start saying, give me something I can feel. Give me something I can experience. I need something real and tangible. In the valley, they wander around lost in more ways than one, even though they have God's presence physically there with them. It's like God is never enough for them. Could have been bad. It's right on the microphone. That's why this moment is so defining. God tells Moses, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Why had God brought his people out of Egypt? We just said it. Why? To be among them. To dwell with them. To, to put his presence right in the middle so he could dwell with them. But now that's all at risk. It's like the only way that God could keep from consuming them was to not be with them because unholy people cannot remain in the presence of a holy God. And when they hear this, how did it affect them? It says in verse 4, they begin to grieve and mourn and they took off their jewelry and threw it down. Why? Because this wasn't just a setback. This was the end of the road. This was boys to men playing at the end of the prom. (laughs) The last day. There's no point going on. I think this moment in Exodus highlights something to our heart. And we need to pause and actually think about it. It should stop us dead in our tracks. We're forced to wrestle with a question right now. What am I striving for? Because the cold, hard truth is we tend to set our sights on godless promised lands. We tend to set our sights on destinations that seem to promise everything but God himself. What's your idea? Let's dialogue for a second. Speak Speak back to me. What's your idea, generally speaking, of a promised land in this life? I know we can all give the heaven answer. But I'm talking about in this life. Retirement. Whatever. If you finally made it where you were trying to go, if you finally got the stuff you wanted, if you finally achieved whatever you're longing for, what are some of the things that would be on that list? What, what are some of the promised lands we live for? Less work, more family time. Less work, more family time. That sounds like a good thing. I'll take that. What else? Stress free. Stress free. <clears throat> yes, Lord. What else? All your needs met. Oh, man. Could you imagine that? It's like, wake up, yep, plenty in the bank account. What are we doing today, honey? You know? Somebody else said something. Bills. Bills, yeah. Bills taken care of. Oh, being seen as successful, too. Not just like, 
not just the proverbial person who's like like driving the blingy car and wearing all the cool clothes but actually lives down in their mom's basement still and they're 45 right like actual society so, sorry is that too definitely on toes I watched Fair, Failure to Launch the other night so it's fresh. yeah I, I think about for a second what kinds of things would be on your list of your promised land Think about all the stuff you want in your life right now. I think, I think of like winning the lottery in every category of life, right. not just financial, yeah. right? Yeah. Now imagine having everything you ever wanted. Imagine that. Now imagine having all of that without God. Like honestly, if you could live and you'd be fine and you have everything you wanted, how would that affect your heart if, if God wasn't there? If you could have everything you ever wanted, the life you crave, your promised land, your vision of, of heaven on earth, would you be satisfied to have it all, all of God's blessings without God himself? Is God your promised land? Is God the goal you seek with your life? Is he the prize you seek? Not, not just in eternity, but I'm talking about like on Monday morning. We all hope that we open our eyes in eternity and God's there. None of us are like, I want to open my eyes and see a pitchfork. None of us are longing for that in flames. Yes, right? We all want God in eternity, but how about tomorrow when you open your eyes? Is God the prize you're seeking on Monday morning? Is he the goal of your Sunday church going? If not, what other reasons are you here for? Do you crave his presence in your daily life? Because listen, if God is not, something else will always fill that place. That's why Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Is God your promised land? And if I'm honest, for me, many times, many times, he's not. And when I think about the stark contrast here on, on some days of my life, about how I would respond versus how the Israelites respond in these moments, like, what are they doing in this passage? They're throwing down their most precious possessions. They don't want them anymore. They're overcome with grief. They're mourning the thought that God would not be at the center of their lives. And yet, I think many of us, if we're honest, and many American Christians nowadays don't live lives with God at the center. Many of us, God ends up being a means to those other ends that we're really aiming for, right? It's kind of like a... a if a, a gal and a guy get married and, and she's well-to-do and her family's rich and then, uh, she, you know, the dad passes away and they read the will and she doesn't end up getting very much and a couple weeks later the guy's gone out of her life. What would you say? You married her for her money, right? Yeah, it's, unfortunately, it's a common story. And yet that's what so many of us have done with God. So many of us have married God for his money. We view God as a means to an end. But listen, the point, the point is not the presence that God gives us. The point is the gift of his presence. It's something we often lose sight of in the valley. Now, I'm not just talking about stuff from God. I'm talking about stuff we do for God, too. Remember that haunting passage in, in, in Matthew where Jesus is talking and he says this. And what's terrifying about this is Jesus said, Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. 
fed the poor, healed the sick, cast out demons. It did all this stuff. And he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never what? Yeah. The point isn't doing stuff for God. The point isn't getting stuff from God. The point is God himself. His presence in your life. And when we forget that, we, we find ourselves wandering through a wilderness surrounded by shadows and fog and forgetting who we are and where we are, who we are, consumed by the daily trials and temptations of life. So where can we go to gain perspective? I'll tell you, point number two, you can't just live in the valleys, you have to climb some mountains. Where do we find Moses in this chapter? In this chapter, Moses is back up on the mountain. He was on the mountain, he got interrupted by the golden calf, and now it says in Exodus 32, the next day Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses goes immediately back up the mountain from where he came. You ever notice how much time Moses spends on mountains? What is the deal with that? One commentator I read suggested that it's because this is where Moses first met God. Remember that back in Exodus uh, chapter 3 and Moses is tending a a flock of his father-in-law Jethro and he sees this burning bush that's not consumed and he goes up on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai or Horeb in some translations and and God speaks to him and calls him. Moses is called by God on a mountain in Exodus 3. He's directed by God in Exodus 19. He's given the covenant by God in Exodus 20 on a mountain. On a mountain, he experiences God's glory. You remember that story? Where he says, Lord, show me your glory. And God brings him up to the mountain and hides him in the cleft of the rock and covers it and passes by. That happened on the same mountain. At the end of his life, he's shown the promised land by God in Deuteronomy 34 from a mountain. What happens on mountains? Just want to make some observations. On mountains, the places that, A, we get higher perspective. Which sounds obvious, right? right um, this, this past Sabbath, it was Monday, I was... Um, Driving, I was going to do some serious thrift shopping up in North County. So I'm driving up to five, you know, because that's what I do on my Sabbath. Dirty thrift stores. It's like heaven. Um, and so that's my promised land. Thrift store, man. Um, so I'm driving up and I felt this tug in my heart. And uh, I looked up and saw the Hoy over there. And I just like, kind of felt God like pulling me that way. So I took the exit and I came over. And you, you know that um, beautiful place where you come over? Uh, and you start to look down at the ocean on La Jolla Shore. Yeah. Oh, it's so breathtaking. Today it was not. It was just hazy. You couldn't see the line where the sky met the ocean. It was just super foggy. And um, you couldn't really see much. And I realized I've been dro- driving in this fog for a while. But I didn't really notice it. Just kind of driving in it. And you don't see what's around you because it's just the water you swim in, proverbially. And I felt God kind of like tugged me up to that mountain. So uh, I went up to Mount Soledad, and it's beautiful up there. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. There's dragonflies. I think I put a picture. Did I put a picture? I didn't put the picture. I could act it up. <laughs> yeah. Come see me after. I'll show you. <laughs> All of San Diego surrounded by this dense, like, haze. But up on the mountain, you can see the tops of the clouds. And then you can see past it where the haze wasn't. It was beautiful. And I felt God just, like, starting to speak to me about how so many of us just travel around in the fog and we don't even realize when we're down in the valley how surrounded we are, how limited our vision is, and how we need to get up to some mountaintop experiences with God. But how often are we doing it? 
The valleys are filled with trials and temptations. Can you live like that? I'll tell you a secret. You can't. Not without some mountaintop experiences. You can't live on the val- in the valleys if you never experience the mountains. The valley will crush you if you don't have a mountain in your life. You have to climb some mountains. You have to find a way to give above all that mess. And if you don't ever get up on the mountains, you'll wander through the wilderness aimlessly forgetting where you're going. Because you have to have vision. Moses had to get away from the trials and temptations of daily life and get a higher perspective. I, um, the philosophers talk about this, and I've mentioned this before, but like uh, Baruch Spinoza talks about subspecie eternitatis, which is a Latin term. It means from the perspective of eternity. And Baruch Spinoza says, we must act in time, subspecie eternitatis, which means from the perspective of eternity. Victor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and Victor Frankl had survived the Holocaust, and he'd seen a lot of people just give up in the middle of the Holocaust, but he'd survived it. And he started a whole branch of psychology after, a whole theory. And in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he picks up on what Spinoza is saying, and he says this, quote, It's a peculiarity of man that he can only truly live by looking to the future, subspecie eternitatis. What are the philosophers saying? They're saying you can't live this life without eternal perspective. You can't walk through the valleys of life if you don't ever get up on the mountain. If you don't get a bigger, higher perspective. Moses had to get away from the trials and temptations because otherwise those things in the valley will crush you. And you had to get a higher eternal perspective. Which brings us to another great reason for mountaintop moments. Mountaintop moments are places we get a higher perspective and they're a place we meet God in special ways. Every time Moses went to the mountaintop, he was, he was meeting God there. And you, you know that moment when God calls Moses up to the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments? It's in Exodus 24. And look at what it says here. Exodus 24, 12. The Lord says to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you tablets of stone with the law and commands I've written for their instructions. In this passage in Exodus, the verb that's translated to stay actually means to be. So God is really saying to Moses, what he's saying is come up to the mountain and when you get there, be on the mountain. What's that mean? I mean, it sounds redundant, right? Where else is Moses going to go? But, you know, it's possible to climb all the way up on that mountain and not even be present. To be so preoccupied with the wilderness and to be so overwhelmed from the climb up and you're already thinking about the climb down by the time you get up there. (laughs) Can you imagine having the opportunity to meet God face to face and passing it up because you were too focused on everything going on back down in the valley. Sometimes we're so focused on the wilderness and the distractions around us that we have a tough time just being present with God. That's what happened to me this past Monday. I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I got some cool ideas for the sermon. Now I better get back down and beat traffic up to those thrift stores. <laughs> and I felt God saying, why don't you just hang out here for a little while? Just hang out with me. We don't always notice the beautiful flower blooming next to the sidewalk. And shoes and headphones and umbrellas and smartphones insulate us from the natural world instead of exposing us to it. And we numb our minds with Netflix. And we hardly crack open our Bibles or spend time with God. When was the last time you pushed pause 
on life and got away with God? When's the last time you took a morning and went and got coffee with God? Just spend some time with Him. Not for anything, like, like the song said, I'm not here for blessings. Jesus, you don't owe me anything. More than anything, say or do, I just want you. It's a beautiful song to sing on a Sunday morning. But is that the song of your heart through the rest of the days of the week? Are you taking time to just be with God? Here's the deal. More often than not, these moments end up becoming mountain moments in our life. They draw us near to God and his promises and his eternal truths. And they lift our eyes up to see God high and lifted up above all the things we're facing down in the valley. And they give us eternal perspective and we catch a view to the promised land. You can have more mountain moments in your life. Amen. They're yours for the taking. Here's the deal. Without the mountaintop, the valley would consume us. But without the valley, we would just try to live on the mountaintop and we'd never actually make it to the promised land. You can't have both. You can't journey on a mountaintop to somewhere else unless you have very long legs and you can hop from mountaintop to mountaintop. Which, okay, that would be cool. Admittedly. Um, yeah. So... Um, you can't just live on the mountaintop. I was thinking about it when I was up there. I was like, man, there's no shelter here from the sun. It's so windy. It's so loud. There's not a lot of vegetation that grows up here. The higher you get. You can't really live up on the mountaintop. And if you do, you're definitely not going to get to the promised land ever. But you can't live in the valley without the mountaintop. And that brings us to our third point, the promised land. Israel's been living for their idea of a promised land. But now they realize that they may end up there. They may end up with everything they wanted. The milk and honey. Man, all the stuff they've been aiming for, but without God. And they're overcome with grief. Why? Because they realize that what they've been searching for, what we've been saying all, all morning here, the promised land without God would be pointless. Pointless. Look at how Moses says in verse 15. And Moses says to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? Look, life is great, but sometimes you see people whose life seems greater. Yeah? Celebrities, CEOs, billionaires, whoever. And you're like, man, if I just had one-tenth of the wealth or influence or power that they have, life would be so much better. And in many cases, that belief in what could be is a, a vision of a sort of promised land for us. In many cases, that becomes the thing that drives us forward in life. You go to school, you go to work, you invest your time, energy, and capital for what? Because we all have to have some vision of a promised land. Otherwise, there's no reason to get out of bed in the morning. Why do you roll out of bed if you don't have some kind of hope that's pulling you forward? But if there's anything that standing in grocery store aisles and checkout lines has taught me, as I stand there reading gossip headlines, <laughs> Brad's newest flame. <laughs> Don't act like you don't read it. <laughs> it's that getting more stuff, meeting more goals, experiencing more romance, very seldom actually ends in getting more happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Celebrity culture, if it doesn't teach us anything else, teaches us one thing, and that is you could end up with everything and realize you have nothing. Yeah. 
And Israel catches a glimpse of that, the freedom of the promised land, the milk and honey, everything they've been longing for, but they won't have God. It's a moment of clarity for them. It's a moment of clarity for you and I as we sit here this morning. Because we are realizing something. Gavin and I were talking about the other day in the car. It was really cute. He said, uh, Dad, would you rather have all the candy in the world or me? <laughs> and so I said what any good father would say. All the candy in the world, of course. And I looked at him and we both busted up laughing. I said, you, buddy, of course. He said, how about all the money in the world or me? It's like, yeah, you, definitely. He said, would you rather have all the money in the world or God? It's like, God, absolutely. <laughs> and he said, um, this is weird. He said, uh, would you rather have me or God? So I told him, I said, hey, I love you, but without God, I'd never be able to really love you like I do or enjoy you. God, is God your promised land? The Israelites realize that the point of the promised land is God's presence. Now pause for a a second and think about what that teaches us. I hope you have a mountain moment of clarity right now in this second. If God is your promised land, then you already have heaven in your heart and life right now. You don't have to wait And eventually, when you do get to heaven, it's not going to feel like some foreign, strange place. It's going to feel like walking home. But if God is not your promised land and you get to heaven, you're going to feel really out of place. There's a show about that, isn't there? Right now, an afterlife show where the girl accidentally gets to heaven. The good place. That would suck. After all, home is where your heart is, right? And we were listening to this song by John Bellion the other night. You guys know John Bellion? So he's got this song called Stupid Deep. You should definitely listen to it. Um, I'm going to read the words. I put them up here. What if who I hoped to be was always me? And the love I fought to fill was always free? What if all the things I've done were just attempts at earning love? Because the hole inside my heart is stupid deep. What if where I've tried to go was always here and the path I've tried to cut was always clear? Why has life become a plan to put some money in my hand when the love I really need is stupid cheap? In fact, it's free, the love you need. It costs God everything, but it's free for us. What if where I tried to go was always here? T.S. Eliot said something really similar about 100 years ago. He said, The end of our exploring is to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. I think if T.S. Eliot and John Bellion are right, and I think they are, then they're saying that the home we dream of, the the promised land we seek, the love we long for, it's already ours. It's right here in God's presence. And we often just take it for granted and don't even recognize it half the time. Every moment in your life is pregnant with the promise of God's presence. Let me ask you, how can you have that in the valley like Moses had this tabernacle? You notice that? Moses sets up the tabernacle and still has God's presence even in the valley. And then he goes up on the mountain and he sees God's glory. 
you can eventually have it fully in the promised land. What are some of the ways the Bible describes heaven? Shout this out to me. What are some of the ways? When you think of heaven descriptors in scripture, it's, by the way, it's not tiny wings, harps, and clouds. So let's get that right. But what are some of the things you think of when you think of heaven? A little louder. Yeah, streets of gold. Streets of gold. Pearly gates. Yes. What? No pain or sorrow. What? No night. The lamb's the light. Mm, yeah. Peace and a lack of striving. Man, this sounds like a good place. New body. New body? Yes, Lord. <laughs> uh. Sorry. New heaven and new earth. Wow. No death. No pain, no sorrow. Beauty. Beauty. No unity. I'm sorry, and unity. <laughs> Both beauty and unity. <laughs> Ironically, I didn't hear you right when you said unity. That's, that's fun. But what's at the center? Think about that. The throne is at the center. The lamb is the light and the river of life flows from it. Jesus is the center of the promised land. And all of those metaphors, all the poetry... All the imagery around heaven is meant to display a truth that the whole point of heaven is heaven. And yes, we'll finally have all the things we long for. Everything you long for, you will finally have. But those things pale in comparison to the one whom our hearts truly long for. One writer puts it this way. The reason the best marriages, the best careers, the best earthly joys always leave us restless is because our Father refreshes, refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. I got a lengthy quote from C.S. Lewis here, but it's so good. Sorry, I'm going to read it. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desire unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. What's he saying? What's C.S. Lewis saying? He's saying we all need a promised land to hope in, but the true promised land is the one that we've had all along. It's God himself. God himself. And until you see that, Scripture says, you'll be wandering around wildernesses, diving into mirages, kicking up sand all around you. Your desire for the promised land is strong if you just recognize it. It's what you've been after in all these things. That's why it seems so ready to break through at any moment. And then it just never really does because all those things are temporary ends. They're like when you're driving back from Puerto Nuevo and you're driving through Rosarito and they got the 300, you know, 200 peso a night motels we pass on the road home to a family where our warm bed waits. They're not home. They're just ends on the way. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The Bible paints one picture that I want to read of heaven. Revelation 21. <coughs> and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the order, old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The point of heaven is God's presence. Jesus is our promised land, and that's our hope. That's what's waiting for us. The question today is, how can we be assured of that hope? How do we know that that's what's actually going to happen? And the answer is because the Bible says there's another deliverer who came. Another deliverer, a true and better Moses who came and showed up on the scene. And John 1.14 says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You know that word is the word tabernacle? So God isn't just separate from creation. He comes down and gets closer. He meets him on a mountain. He pitches a tent right in the middle of their camp. And then guess what? He comes down and he actually tabernacles among us in living form. He takes on flesh and blood. And he starts to touch the sinner. Holy God of the universe. Starts to love people, kill people, show people what the kingdom's like. Jesus Christ came and Jesus had a lot of mountaintop experiences too. You know, when he started out his ministry, he went on a mountain that Satan led him up there and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down. Did Jesus bow? No, he lived a perfect life in our place. And every day that perfect life was fueled by his prayer life. He would get away early in the morning and go to the mountaintop and pray and be alone with God and recapture that vision for his life. There's the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured and heaven and earth seem to come together in him and Moses and Elijah show up and Peter and James and John, their mind is blown and they say, we will build three tabernacles here. Right? They're just, it's amazing, this mountaintop where heaven seems to come together with earth in the body and life of Jesus. And then Jesus walked up another mountain. And he stood in the gap for us. Like, just like Moses was begging God as a mediator between God's people and God himself and said, don't leave us. Please don't leave us. Who, who are we if you go away? You're the whole purpose of the promised land. Your presence is what we long for. Jesus Christ came and he climbed up a mountain. He became that ultimate mediator between God and man. He climbed up the mountain and closed his eyes in death so that we could go <laughs> so that we could go I think it's my time <laughs> those kids they knew they knew the presence of God was in <laughs> oh. he closed his eyes in death so we could climb up that mountain and open our eyes and see his love display for us he climbed up that mountain and was abandoned by God cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could climb up to the mountain and realize that we never, ever, ever have to be abandoned by God. We can have assurance that he will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus got what we deserve so that we can get what he deserved. It was freely given to us. And the story didn't end there. One more mountain. Three days later, he rose again. And then at the end, he said, it's better if I go away. And he went up to the Mount of Ascension and he ascended back into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God, victorious over all the things that plague us in the valleys of our life, death and hell and the grave, above all principalities and powers. He's ruling and reigning right now. 
There's a promised land in your future. Your future is secure. God has you in the palm of his hand. And even today, you can experience it. You don't have to wait. You can taste the promised land. The gospel of Jesus Christ shows us that not only is God with us in the wilderness, not only is he with us in the mountaintop, but he's with us in the promised land that we see. And the point is his presence. With God, you have everything you seek, and without him, even with it all, you get nothing. Sarah McLaughlin wrote this book called Confronting Christianity. It's new, and I recommend it. Kenny just reviewed it. Quick plug for the website, battlepreach.com. Or something like that. (laughs) Listen to this quote. If Jesus is the bread of life, the loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering around lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. But God is with us today, and if you believe that, if you believe the gospel, then you have the Holy Spirit living within you. We are now in this church. We're now tabernacling. We're carrying around the Holy Spirit. We have this treasure in jars of clay. God is with us. The God of the universe wants to walk with you. He wants to set up camp in the middle of your life. He wants to rain down provision from you, from, from the clouds, from rocks from the most unlikely places. He wants to shelter you from the midday sun. He wants to lead you and guide you and direct you. God wants to give you the very best of himself so that when you arrive in the promised land, you show up with promised land already in your heart because you've been dwelling with him. He's been dwelling in the middle of your life. Think about that. All the goodness, all his gifts, the milk and honey, the streets of gold, the loved ones, no death. They're just icing on the cake because he has you and you have him and he's your promised land. Uh, just closing the story. Um, and Kenny, you can come and play if you like. This is, uh, we're going back to Hawaii, but I remember this past um, time. Hawaii was so good. It was so, such a great time with God, with my wife, that I, it was one of those experiences you start chasing afterward. So then I started my tiki mug collection. If you've been to my house, you see it's far too many tiki mugs. Um, and uh, I started going and hanging out, just, just loving Hawaiian culture and just trying to escape, escape to the islands. Even the next sabbatical was almost overshadowed with that experience of the first one. It was so good. And uh, I was at Valley High. And uh, this guy named Desi was playing a, a song on the ukulele, of course. Um, and it was, at my, it was at the end of this past sabbatical, and I was uh, feeling really down. I was uh, wanting desperately to escape, and I, I began to pray in my heart. And in that moment, in Pali High, God really showed up. And uh, I journaled this, and I'm just going to read it to you as kind of a confession, but also hopefully a point of strength for some of you. Um, I'll just read an excerpt. I find myself lately looking for a law, aloha in Mai Tais and Tiki culture. I look for it in reminders of the islands and the dreams of returning one day. But the truth is, though, I don't need Kauai. I need the Holy Spirit. I don't need to escape. I need to be present with the Spirit of God. 
to soak in all his beautiful beauty and, and breathe deeply the wonder of an infinite God who's limited himself not just to the crucified Savior, but in this moment here with me. Sabbath is always present in a sense. I live in the islands. Any place can be that place if he's present there. He's your aloha. I wrote that to me, Vince, comma, he's your aloha. Then all of a sudden, Desi started singing this song. And it was, it was like one of those Holy Spirit moments. Um, the song is by Izzy. You guys know Izzy? Israel? I'm going to read it. Kama Kawili. I didn't say it right. That's his last name. And the song is called Helion to Kauai. And, and the lyrics are this. When I was young and not too smart, I left my home looking for a brand new start. To find a place that's better still. But now I know I never will. And the chorus is Haley on to Kauai, which just means I'm going back to Kauai. I'm going back home. Home was where I started. It's what I had all along is what he's saying. Is he saying the same thing that T.S. Eliot, John Bellion said that the promised land we've been looking for has been ours all along. And maybe some of you, if you close your eyes in this moment, you can hear God whispering to your heart, I am your aloha, I'm your promised land. I am the rest you seek, I'm the home you've looked for your whole life. I'm the love you've chased. I'm going to ask you to think about what it looks like starting today and for the rest of your life to actually set aside time to be with God and to believe that that is the point. What, what could happen in those mountain moments is that you could find the peace of God sweeping into your soul. You can find a piece of paradise no matter where you're at. You'll find the home that your heart's longed for all these years. Let's pray. Father, we need you more than we even know. Some of us here today don't really know you. Some of us here struggle in our daily walk with you. We may even feel guilt or shame about it. Maybe feel numb to the idea because we've tried and it's been a series of starts and stops. Some of us are just beat up and exhausted from the trials and temptations and the valleys we've been walking through. And we're looking for rest. And we're longing for those mountain moments. And either we don't know how or we just don't feel the energy, but God, I'm asking you right now for some people in this place to make this moment a mountain moment for them. Show us how you are at work using the valleys and the mountains and even the promised lands of life to draw us near to you and to help us realize that you are the promised land we've been seeking all along. Show us how you're our promised land. Show us what godless promised lands we've been pursuing. And open our eyes to experience your presence in the here and the now. Help us to experience freedom from the things that bind us up. Teach us to set aside time to just be with you. To believe that your presence is enough. It's the point. God, I pray for some weary souls in this place that are weary from the trials and temptations of life. May they right here, right now, by your power, Lord, by your grace, find your peace sweeping into their souls. I pray that some who've never, ever really felt at home anywhere would begin to find home wherever they are because you're there with them. Pray, 
some people today for the first time find the home that their hearts long for all along. Jesus. I'm going to take some time to uh, respond through singing and